first experiences, first memories. I was three or four years old and my dad asked me to sweep um, the sidewalk. It was probably like 20 feet long sidewalk. Um, and I had the broom and we live in North Carolina and the pine needles would just fall all over the yard and the sidewalk and everything. And I swept that sidewalk and it was perfect. Well, I got to the end of the sidewalk and it connected to the driveway. And the driveway was, you know, 10 times as wide and a hundred times as long. And it was covered with needles. And I just kept going, kept sweeping, sweeping, sweeping. We didn't have a blower, I guess, but I swept every single pine needle off that driveway and it looked immaculate, it looked amazing. My dad came out and saw me when I was almost done. And he, he just talked to me, he's like, that was amazing that you just went above and beyond. You took responsibility and he gave me a $10 bill, which at the time, I think I had only gotten quarters and, and nickels and stuff for doing chores. And so for me, I was like, man, this is amazing. And it, it, it planted a seed. Uh, now we can't all go back and relive our childhood and, and make sure a responsibility seed uh, got planted or a, an ownership seed. Uh, but you certainly uh, do need to, you know, reward that um, in your teams when you see that behavior. And you think about it, like your most favored employees are typically the ones that like just take care of things that um, that need to be done, or we're nagging problems, and they figure out those solutions and they go after them. Welcome to Building Better Games, where we dive into what matters most in game development, leaders, and culture. Your hosts are Aaron Smith and Benjamin Carsage. Aaron and Ben are two veteran game industry leaders who have served a global audience of gamers and want to change how games are made. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Building Better Games podcast. Uh, really excited today to have Randy Ta on the podcast with us. Um, He's a, an old friend, actually, from the Army a few years ago. We worked together for a bit um, and at Fort Carson, Colorado. And I'm going to kick it over to him to do an introduction, a little bit of bio uh, of, of who he is, um, where his background is. Hey, thanks for having me, uh, Ben and Aaron. Uh, excited to be here today. Uh, ben, ben is lying a little bit. He said a few years ago, I think it's been about 14 years now since we were working together uh, back in the Army. No way. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Ben and I, uh, you know, we were in the Army. I was a couple years ahead of him. Um, and after about six and a half years in the Army, I got out of the Army. I went and worked for a company called Corning Inc. Some of you might know this as like Corningware. Your mom might have had some Corningware. I was more in their cable and fiber optic uh, division, cable TV and fiber optic division, and, and did some manufacturing work for them. Through that, I learned that I loved supply chain, but I did not love manufacturing and got an opportunity to work for Amazon and transportation. I went and did that for a couple of years, uh, building out uh, sort of their logistics capability. And then I took a break from Amazon and did a startup. Um, we didn't get a lot of investors and we didn't get a lot of customers, so <laughs> not much of a startup. And uh, I got an opportunity actually to come back to, to Amazon and, um, you know, I've loved every minute of it uh, working there and um, continue to work in transportation and supply chain uh, for Amazon. So that's sort of 
my resume. I'll, I'll preface with, I've worked for some great organizations. I've, I've learned a ton from those organizations, but you know, everything we'll talk about today is really my opinion and based on my experiences, not really the opinions of the army or, or Amazon or anyone like that. So just wanted to preface that for you today. You wanted to, like, we, we talk a lot about the idea of leadership um, and, and sometimes as that relates to games, but in this case, you actually said you want to talk about ownership. Um, so I, I kind of want to hand it to you to kick off. Like what, what's interesting to you about ownership and why is that important to talk about? Yeah, maybe, maybe my second disclaimer here is that I'm always a little nervous to talk about leadership because I feel like I'm, I'm preaching at people like this is the way to do it. And, and by no means am I perfect at it. I'm not perfect at ownership either. Um, in fact, we just got done with our annual review cycle and I wrote it down as an opportunity for me. So I'm going to talk to you guys about ownership today, but it's actually something that I'm working on. And I think it's important to note that like, as you go through your career, um, your principles or the things that, you know, enable you as a leader have to scale. Right. And so you may have a programmer that is the best at, at coding new features in your game or something like that. And so you would rate them at their level as very proficient at ingenuity, possibly. Uh, but if you were to throw them into a senior director role, now ingenuity looks like a whole different thing. Maybe it's an architecture design. Maybe it's scaling a video game in a way that the customer is really excited about or can reach new customers. And that pro developer might be great at writing code, but they're not great at sort of scaling at that level. So at, at that point in their career, you know, that, that skill or principle might be an opportunity. So I think through my career, Ben, you've known me, I think I indexed high on ownership back when we were in the mm -hmm. army and and now, as I've, you know, in different settings, I'm trying to figure out where that fits in for me. And so that's exciting. And then, and then I would say I, I've recently been reading a book called Extreme Ownership uh, by mm -hmm. Jocko Willing and Leif Babin. Um, Jocko's got a podcast out there. I think he started on the Joe Rogan show. So this is my first podcast. So maybe I'll, I'll start my own after this, but there you go. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so Jocko's got, uh, uh, that book out there and, and I just read it and it just really resonated with me on experiences I've had through my life. Um, so anyways, that's, that's why I was excited to talk about it. And I've been doing some other reading, some other examples in life that just come to mind. So excited to be here. Cool. Yeah. Well, where do you want to start with ownership? Like, what do you mean when you say it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a it's a great question. I mean, I think to all of us, like, we understand, like, when I own a home, I sign it, you know, I sign the deed or I sign the loan or, you know, those types of things, or I own a car, you know, and then you have your car and you say, hey, don't mess up my car because I just bought this thing or don't mess up the house. I just bought this thing. And, uh, and then that translates into other things like, well, I don't really care what the homeowner association does because I just rent. Uh, well, I really care what the mm. homeowner association does because I buy and I care about the value of the neighborhood. Mm. Um, but when we get into business, like there's no deed to a project. There's no deed to an initiative. There's no deed to the defect. So who is going to take ownership um, and how do you take ownership in a, in a responsible way? Um, and what does that mean for you in your career? And what does that mean for you in your, your company or your business? Um, broadly thinking, I think those things interest me. Um, particularly nice. And I guess part of me is like, okay, so, so you mentioned initiatives or projects or something like that. Um, what's the time for you, right. To get an example of ownership where you're like, this was a time where I either demonstrated or saw great ownership or 
very poor ownership or something like that. Yeah, I, I, I think, uh, and actually in that, that book, Extreme Ownership, Jocko talks about um, how when you take ownership, you have to take responsibility for every possible input into your system. Um, mm-hmm. and, and really own that. And even though there's other leaders at the end of the day, if something bad happens, you can't say, well, that was their fault. Well, that was their fault. I, I think the military is that microcosm where you're sort of in those life and death scenarios. So you can really kind of understand that, like, if something bad were to happen to my soldiers in combat, it might've been another team's fault, but that doesn't matter. It doesn't change it. I think sometimes in business, mm. some of the stakes are lower, but sometimes they are very high. Like not taking ownership over a cu- couple key strategies in a small business can can really change that business around if you don't get the right alignment. I, you know, I think um, in my own career, um, you know, one example from the army is uh, we used to go out on these missions, and um, every once in a while you'd have to change over the entire radio system or you couldn't talk. And, um, Mm. you know, we were going out at like two o'clock in the morning one day and none of the radios would work because of the system. And um, I realized that even though there was a signal operator, a communications guy that was in charge of making sure all that stuff worked, that like I couldn't just delegate that and not inspect or check on it. Um, And so I, I talked with that communications sergeant at the time. And I said like, Hey, we're going to roll out at two in the morning. I don't want you to stay up all night and just wait for us. But is it okay if I come and knock on your door when we're going out on mission and you come out and you check everything out, you know, 30 minutes later. And when we implemented that sort of simple audit and check, um, I think it made him feel connected to the team. And it also, you know, ensured that we, we never failed. And, you know, there's other examples like that. We didn't own our own medics, but we made sure our medics lived with us in our barracks in Iraq. Um, and, mm. and that made them feel like very connected to the team. And so ownership is sometimes putting your arms around people uh, as a leader and, and making them feel connected for sure. Um, you know, maybe in um, some more practical sense um, or maybe even transitioning to another element of ownership is, is that sometimes it's, it's finding the right owner. Um, sometimes you get tasked with things that you do not have the skill sets to do. Uh, and it's important to evaluate that. And, and part of ownership, when you speak broadly about working in an organization or a company, is making sure that those tasks get assigned to the right owner. Um, I'll give an example where I was on a team that was in charge of designing sortation on the Amazon docs. And... Um, this team did not have any sort of engineering training they had in their title transportation. That was the only thing they had that qualified them to go engineer this. And it worked okay for a couple of years because the sortation was very simple. But as we grew and as we scaled and we, you know, you guys see the vans out there, and we launched all these buildings that became very complex. And it was important for us to stop and say like, you know what, we are not trained or skilled for this on this particular team. So either we need to hire and, and build that skill set within our team, or we need to find the right owners. And, and in this case, it was it was finding a different team that had sort of the, those skill set. So, I, you know, the mm. moral there is that it's, it's just super important to make sure that you, f- you find the right owners or you, or, you, or you train up the right skill set to handle different types of projects and, and problems. So so I think we're, we've talked a little bit about like what ownership is and the 
the, some of the different ways it can manifest in a practical environment. Uh, something that's come up for me is like, because unfortunately, even though some of the, I think most skilled and reliable folks out there are talking about ownership and why it's so important, it's it's a little bit meme worthy, the word. It's, it's like, it, unfortunately, like so many other great words, it's getting watered down right now. Mm. Um, what is it, how does ownership make the world better? Like how does how does ownership make a system better? Like if everyone was a full owner all the time, what's different about the world? I just think maybe to remind people as to why this is an aspiration that we have. Yeah, I mean, I think um, in an organization, um, when you can get to the level of ownership is when you will be operating at your maximum capability because every eye and ear in that organization will be looking for the defects and the problems and they will be excited to surface those, maybe fix them themselves before anyone else ever even knew there was a problem or get them again to the right owner. Um, like you think about like your family and, I, and I've got teenagers, right? So, um, just within the family, my goal is not to give my kids a chore list that they follow. My goal is that when they see something that's been left out, like they pick it up and fix it. Like I don't have to hound them. And the same can mm -hmm. be said in an organization where there's a defect in the way that the data is structured. There's a defect in what's you know being put out to the customers. And it's so easy to say, hey, that's not my space, like throw it over the wall or mm -hmm. whatever. But if, if you start to set that example and your team really starts to understand that, then all of a sudden you start to function as, as a very you know, high-functioning organization. Mm -hmm. And the greatest, like, as a, as a leader myself, like one of the greatest sort of delights that I get uh, is when a, one of my team members said, hey, we found this thing, already fixed it. Uh, I did it this way because I knew that you or the organization liked to do it this way. And, it, and it's fixed. And it's just like, that is so amazing because it takes so much burden off other people to worry about it and go through the motions of figuring out who's in charge and who's got to do what. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think that's important. One of the things I think that's so interesting about what you just said there is that if that happens consistently enough, if people behave that way consistently enough, you don't need a process for those things. You don't need a process for that thing because the sort of natural immune system, if you will, just kind of eats the bacteria or the virus before it spreads. And so from that perspective, it does seem to follow, and we see this all the time, right? That uh, ownership is almost like an antidote to bureaucracy. And bureaucracy is often a solution for a lack of ownership. Do you have any examples that you feel like illustrate that, where you've seen those two things kind of fighting? Like, yeah process solutions to ownership problems or whatever? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it's an anecdote for bureaucracy. I think it's an anecdote for, um, you know, small problems um, mm. that, uh, you know, maybe like the effort to scale and solve them outweighs maybe the size of the problem. There's a lot of, every company has those 1% mm. problems that like you just can't, but it, to fix them takes hundreds of hours of resources. And so, um yeah, I mean, I, I actually think of sort of like maybe a negative example on my team where we had a major defect 
uh, and it was a system outage. And once the system came back online, everybody was go- supposed to go take a certain action and go audit um, a process. And my expectation was that it, it would take 12 hours to get that done, that audit done, and then we'd be good to go. It ended up taking us a full 72 hours, three days to get every team aligned to have completed the audit, documented the audit was done, and that we were good to go. And my lesson to the team was not really about being angry about that incident or upset about that incident, but it's more about like, how do we get to where that doesn't take us, you know, 12 or 72 hours? Because I, I'll fix whatever pro- that system outage, we'll fix that. That problem will be gone and we'll never have it happen again. We'll do our corrective action. But I can promise you there's going to be another system outage for another reason or there's going to be another defect or another problem. And so, like, how do we scale to the point where we're excited about um, understanding what needs to be done to recover from a defect or an emergency? Um, mm-hmm. And so that maybe that was a, an example where it maybe didn't go well in my organization, but we certainly learned from it and are getting better. You've you've used the word excited um, a couple of times, and it's I, I it's funny I haven't heard when we've talked with people I haven't heard that word a ton. Just the idea of people being excited to move towards the problem and resolve it. I joke that like at the team level, I can I can I'm good at motivating. I can get up to motivate, but I have trouble inspiring. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious for you, how do you get to the place where you're where it is exciting, where people are are aligned about either the concept of ownership or the understanding of what they're trying to do or the combination of those things or whatever it is, so that they're like something something, you know, objectively bad happened. And we're excited to move towards that, resolve it, you know, without skipping over the fact that something went wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly easier said than done. I think most people prefer to work on the new, the shiny. They like to work on the development side. You know, I think most programmers don't like to be in the keep the lights on mode and the, you know, fixing the old problems of the past. Um, so that's certainly a, a difficult part. Um you know, I, I have been reading uh, Seven Habits of, of Highly Effective People um, by Covey, and he doesn't actually use the word ownership, uh, but he, he, his, one of his first habits is about being proactive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think mm-hmm. proactive is a proxy word for ownership, because if you think about it, when you own something, you're very proactive about it. The renter wakes, waits until, the you know, something's broken. The owner is very earnest about preventative maintenance or, uh, you know, as soon mm-hmm. as something's wrong, they're going to fix it and make sure and they're not going to wait for, you know, whatever to be out of speculation with the city or whatever. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, generating that sort of, uh, uh, mindset within the team is super important. Uh, sometimes calling people out on it, it needs to be done. Um, you know, not in a way that's, uh, you know, dismantling to that person, but like, hey, you should have seen this. I think you did see this. What proactive actions did you take uh, that could have stopped us? And I think it's important mm-hmm. to have a correction of errors process in your organization. You have to have some sort of corrective action process so that when there is that defect, like you go through and you really get to the root of the problem. You get to the five whys and you get to the root of why you didn't see the problem earlier. 
Like, why did it take this catastrophic failure for us mm -hmm. all of a sudden to go fix this problem? And odds are somebody mm -hmm. saw it before. And when you sort of like teach and coach through that, the pain of sort of those events, I think then people become much more proactive to call out and solve some of those things. As you've dealt with individuals or teams where that started to waver or that started to erode, like maybe they went from, they transitioned from a state of like, this really matters to us or this really matters to me. Like, I want to make this better to maybe I don't care anymore or maybe I'm going to sort of nonchalantly blame another team across the uh, facility or whatever it is. Like, what do you think causes people to slip into that mode where they like stop caring and they lose ownership? Or like, what do you... From your experience what in dealing with this stuff, what are some of the big causes of that? Yeah, I mean, you get into big organizations um, and there can be a sense of like, my team is is better than others or we'd never mess up and there can get to be some ego involved. If there's a problem, it has to be somebody else's. Yeah, yeah it has to be somebody else's. <laughs> yeah. No way. And yeah. so the first inclination is that it's someone else's. Um, mm -hmm. And I think you bring up a good point. I, I think you, you'll you know that you arrived as an owner when something goes wrong and the first thought that you have is what could I have done better to communicate mm -hmm. to the team or communicate to my people or my team or what system or pokey yoke, if you're familiar with that term, error proofing, mm -hmm. could I have done to make sure that this didn't happen? And that's when you've really arrived at an ownership, I, I think, stage. Um, but, you know, if you're trying to, you know, one of the things, if you're trying to inculcate that ownership, you know, um, getting goals built for teams around uh, actually problems of other teams. Um, hmm. So when they own something that, that has a drastic impact around another team, getting them to sign up and partnering with them, going to them, don't go to them in crisis mode, go to them before, um, you know, go to them in your annual planning and say, I would like your team to take on this goal of latency or efficiency or, uh, you know, delivery time or, you know, accuracy of your forecast or your plan. Because it's negatively impact, impacting me. And so getting sort of that stream of input variables into what you're trying to do from an output standpoint and getting those goals assigned and, and leaders to sign up for them. And the other side of that is you you got to be willing to take on some goals too. Like you got to be able to go to those stakeholders and say, hey, what is my team doing that's messing you up? What goal could I take on you know, to help your team out? If, mm -hmm. if you're doing those things... Like that conversation is so much more productive than, uh, you know, sort of the like, hey, you just peed in my cornflakes, you know? Um, right. And, and, uh, and so, you know, I think if you, if you really foster that culture, then, then you're going to be successful uh, down the road. And then the, when, when it does happen, when crisis does happen, there's a little bit more trust built up that that team's got my team's best interest in, in mind. That, like, when you first asked the question, one of the first things I thought about is, you know, it's actually the example you said earlier. We start off and we're a small team and we're able to do our, I think you call it sortation. And and then as as we grow and expand, an interesting outcome of scale is there are become other parts of the organization that becomes easy to blame. And and I, I personally observe that a lot 
um, when I was at Riot and the military, like the larger the sort of operation, the more people you can point fingers at. It's like, oh, it's the other team's fault. You know, if you're developing content, well, it was the release team wasn't good on, it wasn't on time or the publishing folks weren't ready or whatever. Like, and Aaron, you and I have described playing uh, deadline chicken, right? Like as long as you're not the last, you know, if everybody's trying to come together, as long as you're not the last person to the deadline, you don't have to. Well, and I think, I think what's interesting about that too, to your point is, there's another factor, which is if you don't know the guy who gets eaten by the lion, you know what I mean? Like I don't have to outrun the lion. Exactly. I just have to outrun you. If you don't know the guy who gets eaten by the lion, it seems yeah. like you might as well feed the lion or feed as many of them to the lion as, as, right. as it takes to get the eye off you, right? Well, um, that, yeah, my, my uncle did diving and he said, you know, you keep a knife. What do you keep the knife for? Well, that's to stab your diving buddy when the shark comes. <laughs> um, you know, and, and it, it's, it's, but like I see, you see that at companies sometimes like, oh, we're just going to. Well, and yeah, and as the organization gets bigger, it's like you, they're not buddies anymore, right? You don't even right. know half the people. So it's easy to just throw rocks and, 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 I love, divert and I love, Randy, what you said actually hits both of those. What you basically said is, hey, yes, you have your goals, you have your mission, and hopefully it's nested inside of a greater purpose of our organization. There are teams and organizations around yours. Take on goals on behalf of them and ask them to take on goals on your behalf. And what that does is it, it even though you're scaling, it keeps you in touch with the broader space. It keeps you aware of what's going on around you. And Aaron, to your point, puts a face, it puts a human face. Well, it keeps you invested and engaged with yeah, what they're it, like, doing. There's yeah. a relationship there where it's like, hey, we know we're trying to support each other. And you know, I, I've talked a lot about like um, content game development teams and all the different disciplines involved and how there's sort of, there is some flow through a content pipeline. And you know, what does it mean to have goals if you're the concept artist to make sure the character artist can start when he needs to or um, if you're the the rigger to make sure that you're not blocking animation, or if you're the animator to make sure that you're you know giving enough feedback to the rigger about what is and isn't working, um, and and again taking on goals to avoid there being a a situation where you're left with work, and then if you're not in that ownership mentality and you can't just say what could I have done about this, you just immediately go like well it's their fault, well they got it to me late, well they did this, they did that. Um, so I, I, I love that solution, and I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that, just like taking on goals on and on behalf of other teams. Yeah, I mean, I think a good leadership tip there is if, if you're a manager or leading, like asking your sub-teams, like, hey, what, what goals are you taking on to support, you know, the other teams? Um, mm -hmm. And another thing as a leader that you can do is, is when you have the right opportunity, like you shouldn't just disrupt your organizational structure every time there's a conflict. But like if you see like a systemic, problem that just cannot seem to be fixed in your organization the next time you have an organizational change you know put someone that sort of spans the two teams that has that friction point you know and, and leverage mm -hmm. your leaders to manage the friction points um, and I think I think you'll see results there because then you you get that leadership really that that leader really signed up for whatever that problem or goal is um, and they're really vested in it and then they can they can sort the you know the two teams out for sure. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, the connection of you're, you're really thinking of the human element. I think at that point when you make moves like that, you're saying. I recognize that this problem may not be a logistical problem. It may not be a process problem. It, these two groups maybe don't see each other, or they don't get along, or they don't 
share a vision for where we need to go. I'm going to essentially smush them together so that they naturally and organically figure that out. And then the problem will fix itself, or at least I have some hope that it will help the problem get fixed. I often see that not being something that's understood by leaders in corporate America or not pursued. It's like every solution kind of easily falls into this. Well, how do we organize our structure? Where do we, you know, like what what's the process? How do we fix this with a process? How do we make people do three new bullet points, three new things on the checklist so that they're not doing the bad things anymore? And it's like, I, that when we talk, we talk so much about holistic leadership, that just really stuck out to me. What you just said there as like a really good element of holistic leadership. You're like, Hey, if you two groups can't figure this out or get along, I'm going to put you together and I'm going to put a person who's been on both teams with you and you're going to figure out how to speak each other's language and you're going to figure this out. Like, and I'm going to hold you accountable for that, you know? For sure. I, you know, I mean, we talked about sort of getting everyone sort of to be like that intrinsic owner and that that is Mm -hmm. a desired state, but some, you know, sometimes it takes this, uh, you know, another thing is just like talent rotation, which you sort of motivate, which you sort of discussed. Maybe Mm -hmm. you don't bridge the leader, but you just take the two leader of the other organizations, you swap them. Now they have to own (laughs) the problem they, they used to create and they probably, know where the bodies are buried on the other team and then now all of a sudden their light bulb goes on and they, say, yeah. they go to the other guy and say hey I know how to fix this problem actually yeah. <laughs> and, and here's how I you do it I love that I think that that's yeah. such a clever and again thoughtful way to approach what is again fundamentally a bunch of people working together and mm-hmm. you know you're, you're, you're almost forcing them to acknowledge uh, the other's problems through empathy because it's like now you're in their shoes literally you know, I love well, that. It, it breaks out of the false constraints, right? You have like the imaginary constraints that you've placed yourself in, kind of what you were talking about earlier when you don't have that ownership mentality. Mm-hmm. Hey, I own the stuff that's in this box and that's in a different box and may our boxes never touch. And suddenly it's like, ah, crap, now I'm in charge of the other <laughs> now box. Now I just put all your boxes into one <laughs> box and shook them around, you know? Yeah. How's that exactly. feel? <laughs> So, like, I think you can use these techniques as great uh, talent development tools because uh, your leaders can, um, you know, rotate through different job functions, and that's going to make them more well-rounded. You know, when Ben and I were in the Army, when you were a lieutenant, you did a project planning role, and then you went over and did an ops role. And then you got promoted and then you did a project planning role and an ops leadership role and then you got promoted. And that's sort of how they did it. You never went straight up the ops channel. You never went straight up the project manager channel. Um, And I think, you know, when you're looking at your team, like think about what does it take to be a good manager at this level and the next level? Like what skill sets do those people need? And maybe that means someone rotating to a job that isn't necessarily our strength, but you see a strength in them having big vision and leading teams and taking ownership. And so you've got to get them well-rounded in the different things. So not only can it help you break down some of these problems and gain ownership across problems, it can also help you develop your talent so that they're well-rounded leaders when they you know, become senior leaders in your organization. That, that reminds me of something that, you know, and and you can debate the merits of this, but something that the army did do well is that because of that rotation, um, the general skill of leadership had many opportunities to be developed. And, you know, it's funny that the, the most senior rank is called a general, right? And, um, it, and there is this expectation that they, they know a lot about many things and certainly they have their specializations, but there's this broad awareness and, um, 
there's trade-offs to everything, but I think it it focused individual leaders on the craft of leadership. Um, and what does it mean for me to effectively help other people reach their goal, right? Like my definition of leadership, influencing others towards a goal. What does it mean to do that well, almost regardless of the circumstance I'm placed in? And I think that, like, that's key. So, uh, the, you know, one of the things that I think is when you say ownership and we talk about ownership, I think um, when Ben and I are teaching concepts similar to this, we often use the word responsibility. I think there's a lot of similarities and it's like, it, I, I love it. I think it's such an important concept. And as I've grown in my career, I've come to realize that it's a difficult thing to teach people to do or to be inclined towards. I think that uh, as I think about it, the cynical part of me goes like, well, Aaron, hire a bunch of people that are already highly inclined towards being owners, being responsible. Mm -hmm. And certainly I've worked at companies who were like, make sure to find if that ownership spark because somebody has it and you just grab them because we don't want to teach them that. Um, I think that that's a little bit reductionist, but I am curious to kick that back to you. Um, what do you think are the things that get somebody to a place where they're like, I want to own this. Like, I want this to matter to me. I want to internalize responsibility for this. Like, what are the things that get someone to that place? Yeah, I I think that's such a good word. And actually Covey in, in Seven Habits uses that word and he's, he just breaks it down. He's like, what does responsibility means? It means you have the ability to make a response. And when you really think about ownership, like you walk by the problem, do you have an ability to take a response? And if you mm. take that response, now you're an owner. So they, they are very synonymous terms. I love how you guys have sort of weaved in and out of, of this topic in the vernacular that I use versus what you guys say. Um, I do think that um, I'll use a very small example, but I do think you, it can be trained. You certainly have to, as a leader, identify when it happens and reward it um, for sure. And, and my very, one of my very first experiences, first memories, I was three or four years old and my dad asked me to sweep um, the sidewalk. It was probably like 20 feet long sidewalk. Um, and I had the broom and we lived in North Carolina and the pine needles would just fall all over the yard and the sidewalk and everything. And I swept that sidewalk and it was perfect. Well, I got to the end of the sidewalk and it connected to the driveway. And the driveway was, you know, 10 times as wide and 100 times as long. And it was covered with needles. And I just kept going, kept sweeping, sweeping, sweeping. We didn't have a blower, I guess, but <laughs> I swept every single pine needle off that driveway and it looked immaculate, it looked amazing. My dad came out and saw me when I was almost done. And he, he just talked to me, he's like, that was amazing that you just went above and beyond. You took responsibility and he gave me a $10 bill, which at the time, I think I had only gotten quarters and, and nickels and stuff for doing chores. And so for me, I was like, man, this is amazing. And it, it, it planted a seed. Uh, now we can't all go back mm. and relive our childhood and, and make sure a responsibility seed uh, got planted or a, an ownership seed. Uh, but you certainly uh, do need to, you know, reward that um, in your teams when you see that behavior. And you think about it, like, your most favored employees are typically the ones that, like, just take care of things that um, that need to be done or were nagging problems and they figure out those solutions and they go after them. Um, mm -hmm. I use the example of uh, one of, I think, the best examples in the Bible of someone who 
exemplified responsibility and sort of the rewards of that would be Joseph. Uh, if you recall, he got sold into slavery. Um, and his, they say his father favored him, and I'll get back to that. They don't really say why. Um, but he got sold into slavery. He, he goes to Egypt. Um, he just takes responsibility for everything in his master's house. And the master promotes him to head of everyone in the house. That was Potiphar, I believe. And then mm-hmm. Potiphar's wife tells a lie about him. He ends back up in jail. He's extremely faithful in everything he's given in jail. Pharaoh has a problem. Pharaoh has a dream. They call in Joseph. You know, Joseph is faithful to help Pharaoh, and Pharaoh gives him more and more work. And eventually, Joseph is administering this recovery through a famine in preparation for a famine for all of Egypt. As a slave, he's now sort of first in command of everything that's happening in, in Egypt. Um, and, and you just think about his ability to climb the ladder. Sure, he had setbacks along the way, but like he just continued to exemplify ownership in whatever space that he was in. And so I mm-hmm. kind of go back to, like, they never really say why his father had showed favor to him, but I, I tend to think it's because he was probably the most responsible of the kids in tending the flock and tending the sheep and tending the fields. Um, and he... And, and that is and why his brothers had to destroy him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only so, other option that they have, really. This guy's so making us look terrible. Yeah. Lesson is be really responsible and you two could get uh, sold. <laughs> yeah, you two uh, can get sold uh, to slavery. But, <laughs> you know, there's just there's so many examples. And if you think about your own self and the, the times where you did something really well in business or the time that you got promoted or mm-hmm. the time that your company really delivered, it's when you took on things you didn't know you could take on or didn't feel like we're quite in your scope and people noticed mm. and said man you're you're owning it um yeah. mm. and so great lesson in your career development and great lesson in how you sort of develop your team there, there's a courage there too isn't there and like a putting yourself out there there's a risk taking element of that that just struck me as you're telling that story which is you <laughs> you know maybe a little bit too on the nose with that particular story but there's something that can go wrong right? If you put mm-hmm. yourself out there too much, there is a chance that you'll screw it up. Like, I mean, I don't necessarily know that I would want to be translating Pharaoh's dreams personally. Um, I feel like the, ri- <laughs> the risk of screwing that up and the cost of failure seem quite high. Um, but, but again, there is this, uh, there's an audaciousness there. And uh, I think a willingness to step into the unknown and, and understand that responsibility is valuable in and of itself. And that even if you screw something up, it's still better than not trying at all. You know, it definitely mm. is. Or, or that you get to that point where you're like, Oh man, I'm over my head, but then you can really articulate why and you say, you know what, mm-hmm. we need a data scientist to solve this problem. Like I am not a PhD. I'm not certified to solve this algorithm that we need to build, but I've mm. learned the inputs. I'll help us hire somebody and explain all the inputs that, you know, that somebody can solve that problem. Um, but you're right. Um, but I also think there, there gets to be a point where like at scale, like some of those problems get so nasty that no one wants to take them. And so like, it's not like you're necessarily putting yourself out there too much. Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, it's a balance for sure. Yeah. There's, there's an interesting, you know, you were saying earlier, and I, it stuck with me a little bit, the idea of scale and how as you've scaled something that, like, I mean, I, I remember working with you and as you said, ownership is not something uh, you, sh- you struggled with when we were working together um, at all. 
uh, if anything, it was something you exemplified. And, and simultaneously, I, I, I look at that and you saying like, hey, that's actually an area of growth for me now based on how scale has changed. And I think through my own experience, um, and Aaron and I have talked a lot about leadership and scaling. What does it mean to be in charge of, okay, now then I was in charge of a team and we made you know champions or whatever. Well, now I'm in charge of an initiative. It's several teams and they work on tools and backend and whatever else. Now I'm in charge of like all of this, you know, as you scale, there is this reframing that happens because every time you go up a layer, let's say inside of the organization, being incredibly, feeling like you're a great owner of what you used to have is so insufficient. And all the things that were really almost outside of your sphere of concern or sphere of influence or whatever, like from, you know, it's just, they're just outside of your awareness to some extent. Now they're suddenly within it. And it's almost like they come inside of your sphere, your, 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 your vision, and you have to now overcome that one. You know, you have to figure out, okay, wait, now I also have to take ownership of that. Um, because yeah. to, to the point, like even coming back to the Jocko Willing thing, it's if this, if this fails, it's to recognize that there's probably something I could have done better or differently or whatever to increase the probability that it would have succeeded or it would have gone better. And, and I think, I think about some of the later roles I had, um, Aaron, when I was working with you and there, it's funny as I look back at it and, and maybe perhaps, um, it's humbling to say there were still lines where I was like, yep, that's their fault. Right? Oh, of course we've and, all done that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And, and even, even as I was like, you know, sort of sometimes maybe even almost patting myself on the back for like, look, I'm looking bigger than my team and even bigger than the initiative. And I'm, I'm looking at all this, but I still had the people that were high enough outside of whatever, or yeah. far enough removed where I was like, well, that's their problem, you know? Yeah. And, and to Randy, what you said earlier was really interesting to me because you're absolutely correct. The points in my career where I felt the most successful and often was perceived as the most successful often were when I said, well, I don't care whose fault it is. I'm going to see if I can solve it. Yeah. And it takes some humility to do that for sure. I'm going to risk messing it up. <laughs> you know, there's, there's something else interesting that popped into my head just now too, about this idea of the form responsibility or ownership takes as you scale. And I, I've seen one of the things that happens when you get to like, I'll call it the director level for lack of a better term, but where you have, you're at this like large scaled team of team structure. You know what I mean? Like you might have uh, 10 different leaders reporting to you that all run their own respective teams or whatever, but you so much, I think when you're, when you're an individual operator or contributor or even a team lead, so much I think of the form ownership takes are material problems that you can physically solve on the ground with you and the immediate people around you. And so I think it's easy for us to attach the idea of physically solving a problem in the pit with ownership. And actually, I think as you scale, you lose your ability to do that. And so I think a lot of managers or senior managers will try to keep their hands or like one finger in every single pot basically, um, constantly to feel like they're still owning things the way that they were, they, they perceived that they were before. And then it's like, okay, well, if one of my team leads messes up or a team is struggling, do I look myself in the mirror and say, what was wrong about the system that I set up that 
caused this to happen or allowed this to happen versus, well, now I need to go punish that person because that's my job as an owner now. It's like, it's, I think that the, you get a kind of an N squared complexity thing that makes it much more challenging to understand what good ownership looks like at that senior level than it might. It's like, if you get all your stuff done and you keep an eye out for any new stuff, that's literally what ownership can be look like at that small level. But once you scale, it's like, it's systems of systems of systems of systems, and you don't necessarily have that luxury anymore. And I think that that probably helps explain why so many of us screw it up a lot of the time, you know? And why it's like, to your point earlier, Randy, it's like a whole new skill set, right? You get up to that level and now all of a sudden you're relearning everything because a lot of those old tools, they just don't work anymore. Yeah, 100%. I mean, like, I don't think I've ever, you know, I think in, when I was junior in my career, I'm like, well, why does this person like have that title or that? Why do they make that much money to do whatever? And then like you get up there and you realize like <laughs> some of that stuff is really hard. Yeah. Uh, they yeah. make some tough decisions. I think... You know, one of the things you should be doing as you're scaling is challenging. First of all, am I giving my teams the right resources? That becomes your new responsibility. That becomes your new level of ownership. Like if I just pile on the tasks, not going to get done. Am I giving my yeah. team the right priorities of work? And third, am I challenging my team or myself with my team to deprioritize some work and move somebody who's really good to go focus on something else? Um, and I think so many people mm -hmm. sort of hang on to some of those sacred cows and it's got to be staffed. Mm -hmm. But that thing is running super efficiently, like focus in on what are the biggest problems that, that, that are the, you know, either the problems of the day or you're starting to look around corners and you're saying, what is the problem yeah. going to be of tomorrow? Uh, yeah. Super yeah. important. That's such a salient example. I love that. You're so spot on. So, so much of what ownership can mean, again, when you're at the for lack of a better term, junior level is about what you can do and what you should do. And you just called out a great example of how once you sort of get to a complex enough system of systems level, what you shouldn't do and what, what you're choosing not to do actually often becomes more defining <laughs> mm -hmm. than what you choose to do because that that even that right there is super counterintuitive, right? Like or stop actually, doing. Or stop doing. Yeah, or right? stop doing. Yeah. And and again, you're right. When I was junior, I didn't think in those terms at all. Because I it was just I was like a hungry, hungry hippo. It was like, how much work can I gobble up, right? To Im impress everyone with how much work I can get done. And then you you quickly reach a point where you realize that there's literally no amount of effort you could possibly put out that could get all of the things in the world that need to get done done. So it's actually about selecting carefully what gets done and what does not. <laughs> I, I remember um, one of my NCOs and Randy, you knew her, um, uh, Staff Sergeant Mills, who I think is Staff Sergeant Smith, Sergeant or she's probably Sergeant First Class Smith. <laughs> I loved her. Um, she was awesome. She was great. Um, and she taught me something about that. I remember it was, I was the hungry, hungry hippo, except, you know, as Randy knew, I was kind of a bitter, cynical hippo sometimes. But, um, but, you know, I was just trying to get all the work done and do everything. And she, it was, she was headed home for the day and she just came into my office and said, sir, go home. There's always more work. And it stuck with me ever since, like ever since then I've remembered that. And it's so true. And even what you're describing, what both of you are talking about in that space of scale, there's always more work. There's so much more work than you could ever possibly do. 
And Aaron, to your point, yeah, what don't you do? Yeah, That's what it is. It's when you have way too many balls that you can't keep them all in the air, which ones do you put down? Yeah. Well, and again, if you're and if you're at the head of that organization and you can't say no, it only gets harder the, the farther down you go, right? Yeah. So yeah. That, that that if that's like a, a word of wisdom I would like to give to any like senior manager out there, it's like, hey, if you don't know how to say no, if you don't develop that skill or don't develop the skill of, again, it, saying no is a strong way of putting it. It could also be being deliberate about what gets done and what you shouldn't do right now. Yeah. Um, then it only gets harder for each level below you. So, yeah, because they're and they're following your example. You're exactly. setting that standard. Like you're going to burn out everybody who works for you. Yeah, yeah, and that's and like, I think we've yeah, that's like yeah. sort of like upward ownership, right? Like yeah, uh, you need to communicate. You need to be able to clearly communicate to your leadership. Like these are the priorities you've given me. I can only do four or five. Which four mm-hmm. are most important? I believe yep. it's these four. That's the exact way to approach that. Uh, you know, sometimes you get sort of, you've given me too much work. Like that's like sort of the worst of that. Or, or not yeah. saying anything. Suffering silence is probably the worst. Then the, you've given me too much work. Okay, that's not very productive. Or, you know, these are the five things. I can only do four. That's getting there. But when you really say these are the four I think are most product, or important and why, then you've given your leadership some guidance on, on how to make a decision. Love that. that. They, they yeah. may not be able to see. Yeah. Like don't don't assume yeah. that they can see what you can see. Yeah. You know, once you get above sort of the individual contributor level, like people are just looking at things through different lenses, 100%. And, and just because they don't see what you see doesn't mean they're not good. Uh, it means that they've got a whole different perspective, a whole different set of priorities. Yeah. Well, uh, if their job know. necessitates them seeing every little detail yeah, on the ground, exactly. they're probably doing it poorly. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's great. Yeah. So don't. So Randy, I I think. think, Oh, did you? Honestly, I think Ben, what you were saying is like, don't violate sort of your core principles or work-life balance in the name of of ownership, and and totally, totally agree with that because you'll burn yourself out. And unless you've built the biggest, best video game in the world, there's always going to be more work to do. Your organization is, and your organization is going to take as much as you give it. Like that, you know, you're not hourly. Like nobody's watching the clock. They don't know when you start and they don't know when you stopped. Um, and so you've got to sort of, you know, take that because there's ownership in your family and there's ownership in your personal life that you've got to take too, for sure. So, so you are a director, you're a director at Amazon. I, if this isn't too personal a question to dive into ownership being an area of improvement for you. What what are you working on right now when it comes to ownership? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the things that we've talked about and it gets into um, just the cross matrix and complexity of problems and how interrelated there are. And it's not just two teams that are questionable of who owns it, but there might be five or six or seven teams mm-hmm. that are owning it. And the effort it takes just to sort of bring that coalition together and say like, we're gonna fix this problem um, mm. and then set the right goals and have that conversation that I talked about earlier. Remember I, I said at the beginning, I'll say things that you should do, but I don't always do them well. And one of those is like getting that, uh, that other leader together and saying, will you take this goal on? I need you to take mm. this initiative on. Um, and then what happens when they say no, <laughs> right? And then, and then how, right. To, how to scale that. And so that's just something that I'm I'm struggling with. And like, you don't always want to be in full escalation mode. You don't want that. That's not productive. Um, and so 
I'm really trying to work through those things and, and get better at them. Yeah, that connects to me, that idea of how do, how do I create a shared vision that we can all move towards together as the space gets more and more and more complex and the, the sort of sub goals that everybody has potentially diverge some from each other um, to, to keep everybody coming back so that we're achieving what we need to achieve, each of us individually and collectively. Full escalation mode too. That's an interesting one. That one, that one just like hit me when you said that. Full escalation mode is really interesting. I, I've spent a lot of time in my career thinking about full escalation mode. And I think one of the things that we actually like secretly about full escalation mode is that it takes us out of a place of responsibility because all we can ever do is react to one problem after another, you know, like we're always fixing the, the like house that's on fire or just put, putting water on the house that's on fire. Or always so we don't have to be, right? we're not being proactive anymore, right? We're being reactive. So we don't have to think that much. Is there fire? Put water. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> so. and that people, people get comfortable in that mode. And, and that oh, is yeah. like, as you scale as a leader, you know, that ownership piece, again, part of your job, part of your ownership role is to not spend all your time fighting fires and to not spend all your time thinking about day to day. Like if you're not thinking about, you know, the future two years out and how are you going to disrupt? How are you going to be different? How are you not going to do more of the same? You're never going to sort of uh, get there and you'll always just be, you know, sort of escalating and managing escalations from sort of whatever your current state is. Nice. Well, is there anything else you wanted to say about ownership or overall? I know you said half an hour, 50 minutes yeah. ago to your, oh, to your daughter, well, you so I don't want to keep you too long. <laughs> you guys can edit out. Yeah, I'm probably violating some work-life balance here. Um, I, I think, <laughs> you know, my final thought is that, like, um, your words have power. Um, and I think back to very early on when I was at West Point and um, I was talking to an officer. His name is Major Whiteside. Uh, he's probably promoted by now, but um, he he told me one of the most rewarding things as an officer is when he planned a mission and he planned every detail and his team executed it perfectly. In fact, the only thing that didn't go right were things that he forgot to say that brought him the most satisfaction. And when you think about it, like almost none of your team shows up to do a bad job today. No one does that. Mm -hmm. It's very rare. And, and those get weeded out pretty quickly. Like people want to do a good job. And so when you can develop that plan and clearly articulate that plan to your team, that allows them to take ownership of whatever you're working on. And so don't forget that your words have so much power. I always find that the things that I say, the things that I say out loud that we're going to do, that we're going to focus on, those are the things that get done. And the things that I don't say and I just think in my mind and never actually follow through with words don't get done with action. So that would be sort of my final uh, piece of advice. And we've woven in so many different principles here into ownership. like you know, speaking, you know, communicating, um, organizing your team, like you know, all these things, but they also sort of tie back that a great owner is doing those things. So yeah, I will leave you with that. Awesome. Love it. Randy, thanks a ton. Um, and thank you all for listening. I uh, hope you've enjoyed this episode of Building Better Games. Uh, talk to you next time. Bye-bye. I right, see you guys. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to Building Better Games with Aaron and Ben. If you have comments, questions, or would like to work with Ben and Aaron, shoot an email to info at valarinconsulting.com. That's info at V-A-L-A-R-I-N consulting.com. Please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Valarin Inc. We'll catch you next time.